Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm David Breer, CEO here at 11FS. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing some new data from S&P Global, which shows that venture capital funding could be on the downturn. This is according to their research based on year-on-year funding in August. Funding is down 37% at its lowest since the COVID pandemic. So what we're going to be doing is discussing this in more detail. We're going to be seeing, is this just a temporary slump or is this the start of more of a a worrying downward trend. What are the implications on fintech and who, despite these numbers, is actually managing to buck this trend and find investment? To have this discussion with me, I'm joined by some super duper awesome guests. Firstly, Zainab Yavuz, who is the partner at General Catalysts. This is an investment firm whose portfolio includes Stripe, Canva and Airbnb. Uh, Lovely to have you on the show. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you for having me. Very good. And for anybody who doesn't know you and your business, um, tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. Um, so as General Catalyst, we're a multi-stage fund. Uh, we invest anywhere from pre-seed to growth stage, um, and we invest globally. Um, I'm focused on helping lead our early stage practice uh, out of London. Very, very cool. Very well placed to talk about what we're going to be talking about today then, which is lucky. Producers always do an amazing job, don't they? Uh, we're also delighted to welcome Kirsty Grant, who is the Managing Director at Equity Crowdfunding Platform, Cedars. Welcome, Kirsty. How are you doing? Hi. Thanks for having me, David. I'm well, thank you. Uh, you've had a, a busy year, I imagine, in uh, in these slightly odd times. Uh, how goes everything at Cedars? We have indeed. I'm trying to think uh, since the last time I was uh, on 11FS, quite a lot has happened in the life of Cedars. Uh, Late last year, we were acquired by uh, US platform, investment platform Republic. So we're now part of a global team um, and global investment community uh, with Cedars still leading the kind of Republic's offering in the UK and Europe. And uh, speaking of Europe, just last week, we launched our EU regulated platform, uh, a big, really significant milestone for us, uh, culmination of about 18 months of work to sort of get authorised and and get launched in, in Europe. So uh, lots to offer both founders and investors now. It's very exciting, exciting times. And again, very well placed to talk about what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and last by no means least, a big FinTech Insider hello to Liza Landsman, who is the CEO over at Stash, who incidentally successfully raised $40 million earlier on this year. So, I mean, you're just sort of proving that this is this is a big love bunch of nonsense and you can do it anyway, I guess, aren't you? Um, I don't know if that is the lesson I would draw from that, but um delighted to talk more about that. Thanks for having me, David. No problem at all. We'll get into that uh, and much, much more. Uh, if we dive straight in then, I, I guess kicking off and, and really looking at the, the state of, uh, of VC funding, I mean, if fintechs are already feeling a bit of a pinch from the lack of in- investment, then, I mean, Zainab, maybe starting with you on this one, um, uh, this is really what you guys do looking at uh, with a global view of actually where all of the trends are at and, and really where 
different markets are seeing opportunities or rises or falls. I mean, uh, are you seeing a, a downward turn reflected in the day-to-day of what you're doing? I wouldn't call it necessarily a downturn. It's definitely an adjustment, an adjustment in response to what's happening at the macro level. So if you look at kind of the last, let's say, two to three years, you know, we were operating in a low interest rate environment up until COVID, which of course means that the you know, the cost of capital is lower and therefore this fills into public markets, which then hits into private company valuations. And then just before COVID happened, we were already seeing some signs of initial signs of tightening. But then when COVID happened, two things happened. One, the low interest rate environment continued a lot longer than initially it was, it thought, it was thought to be. And the second thing is that certain sectors really benefited from um, the, to push the digital. And fintech was a big part of this. So as a result, we had a lot of um, private and kind of public funds going into equities um, and also certain sectors really outperforming because of transactional revenue businesses. Um, so if you look at it now with the market tightening, it's the response to that that we're seeing a slowdown in funding. Yeah, I mean, it's a, an interesting one if you start looking at, I guess, at the size of funding raises and rounds as well, right? We we definitely saw, a, uh, you know, the, the the big fintechs were very much putting kind of as much grain in the barn as they could do to weather the winter, weren't they, in terms of not really understanding, you know, when we'd come out of that period. But, I mean, are you seeing uh, any impact, though, I guess, not just from an investment perspective, but in terms of the, uh, the period of time that we've been in from COVID? I mean, are there just less startups now? Like, uh, you know, is it harder to begin a business in the middle of a global pandemic than before? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I've necessarily seen that, but um, you could definitely point to why that, that could be a reason. What do you think? I mean, I, I'd say there are more startups, if anything. I think we're seeing maybe late, we're seeing, uh, you know, the number of late stage funding rounds going down. That's just a response of how much funding has has happened in the last two years. If you look at particularly the seed stage, we're seeing an absolute boom because um, it's a really good time to build now from a talent perspective. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a very good point. I mean, with a lot of people leaving corporate jobs or getting to a point where they feel more comfortable to kind of step out of it. Uh, just on the news last week, we had uh, Jeremy Burge from over in uh, J.P. Morgan Chase jumping out of that to go and start his own fintech. You know, I mean, there's, it's amazing how many people can go and do those things now with all of the right connections. But uh, Kirsty, you were shaking your head there as well. You're not seeing any shortage of startups trying to get into the market or or have an impact. No, I don't think so. I mean, we've certainly seen lower deal volumes this year, um, but I don't think that I think that is sort of part of that macro trend that that Zenup's referring to. Um, out of COVID, we saw a spectacular sort of increase of investment activity. A bunch of businesses launched, um, as Zenup was saying. You know, a a, a um, you know, acceleration of adoption of digital solutions for all sorts of things. And so 2021 and bleeding into 2022, we saw incredible activity. But, you know, I think regardless of sort of other macro events going on in the global world at the moment, I, I don't see how that, that sort of acti- level of activity and those valuations um, could have been sustained for much longer. Uh, we saw sort of competitive almost deployment of capital through that period. Uh, and this, I don't, we just couldn't keep up that pace. Yeah. Do you, do you think that 
is actually over though. To uh, and I, I appreciate the intonation in my voice sort of gave away what I thought on that because uh, while definitely people are not just throwing money on on fintech like it's you know it's a disappearing thing. The transformations within slices of financial services have by far over. You know, it feels like the flurry of B2C activity was was insane. You know, the retail banks and SME banks, particularly, I think the the valuations around those things were a little bit crazy, weren't they? But but it feels like the the B2B sense of fintech is where more of the money seems to be sort of skewing towards. I don't know, uh, you know, Kirsty Zainab, if, if you're seeing that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder whether that's sort of the correction side of things that, that Zainab referred to rather than a, a wholesale shift. Uh, you know, of course, money was flowing into consumer-facing fintechs coming out of COVID. Consumers were spending like crazy. Uh, they'd adopted these new technologies. We saw the sort of revenge spending. And, uh, you know, of course, people wanted to be in on that. And as we saw that that uptick, it was such a sharp recovery coming out of COVID everybody wanted in and everyone was you know, sort of scared of missing out, right? And we're sort of seeing a correction of that where it's back to, okay, what do your unit economics look like rather than just your pure growth rates? Yeah, I'd say particularly in Europe, um, it's a special time because if you look at the last 10 years in fintech, a lot of innovation has been in consumer. Uh, if you look at the next 10 years, I think the next kind of generation of new fintech unicorns will be built in infrastructure. And that's actually very much driven by talent. Because if we look at um, Europe now, we're seeing recycling of talent for the first time at scale in fintech. And we're seeing a number of experienced operators who gained their experience operating in these growth uh, consumer fintech businesses, seeing internally how infrastructure scales. And a lot of that they had to build in-house because they didn't have third-party tools. So now they're leaving these roles in the consumer fintechs and they're saying, I'm going to productize this infrastructure. And then we're going to have a new kind of level of new consumer fintechs being built on top of the new infrastructure players that are emerging in Europe. So um, I think that's an exciting time from like a seed investing perspective, backing these founders and ideas. I actually love how you're describing the circular economy within the fintech community, but I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think it works both on a talent perspective in terms of people's abilities, but also it works on the almost de-risking it from an investor's perspective as well, right? You know, it's the old sort of jockey horse kind of metaphor, isn't it? The uh, uh, I'm sure uh, Zainab and Kirsty, from uh, an investor perspective, you like to see people who have got a good track record of doing it before. But uh, Liza, from your perspective, bringing in talent who have made these things happen uh, as well is is important. Maybe if we stick with you, actually, I mean, you guys have kind of bucked this trend a, a little bit, bringing in a, a really, you know, sizable raise for, for Stash. I mean, was that more difficult than previous rounds or was that more difficult than you think than it, it just because of the market timing? Sure. I mean, I uh, only have been in chair at Stash uh, since February. So this is the first round I've raised at Stash, but uh, I've been an operator for multiple decades and took a brief five-year palate cleanser as a general partner at NEA here in the States. So I have lived through a number of funding environments. I would say this is probably the most difficult of the last two decades. Um, but I think, you know, it's interesting. I think there was definitely a pull forward as both Christy and Zainab have described in like attraction to consumer fintech 
during COVID and a little bit of a reversion to the mean now. But what I would say is that um, there is a renewed interest in profitable companies with good unit economics, which um, shouldn't be something that is just about the fashion of the moment, but first seems, principles Seems crazy investing. when you say it out loud, doesn't it, really? It's like uh, profitability. I know, I and, know. Uh, It'll never catch That's on. That's a no, wacky joking. idea. I know. Who thought of that? But um, I think part of the reason we were able to attract the capital we did um, earlier this fall is really because of that. Um, and so it's really structural about the business. Um, I definitely think particularly consumer fintechs uh, will find this environment more challenging than any they would have encountered in the last five or six years, for sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting. To, uh, I mean, Zainab, your point earlier on around, uh, you know, uh, we had a low interest rate. I mean, we had a no interest rate period for like a decade, didn't we? And And actually, bizarrely, just that swing change broke a lot of people's spreadsheets that were running their businesses. You know, and if your if your funding raise was based on a uh, you know low interest environment, and actually suddenly you've got you know five, six, seven percent. Yeah, you know, it just changes a lot of business models around the world, doesn't it? Which is is scary. But I, I guess on the flip of that, you know, to your point, Kirsty, in terms of seeing new people come, wherever there's a crisis, you know, the most of the greatest um, fintechs seem to have come out of the financial crisis from 2008 onwards, right? You know, in this crisis, we we're definitely seeing people sort of seeing it as an opportunity as much as a as a threat to everything as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, to echo Liza's points, you know, we've been through swings and roundabouts. I mean, CEDAS has been around for 11 years now. And we've been through a number of major world and market events, uh, Brexit, COVID. We've been through, I think, five prime ministers in the UK now, um, political turmoil. It's just and in the last two years, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. In the last financial year. Um, and now the latest economic downturn. Um and our investor base has shown incredible resilience throughout these periods, um, often out of sync, I'd say, with what is happening in the broader markets. Um, but definitely, I think this one is, I, I would echo Liza's, uh, Liza's comments that this is probably the most sustained we've seen um, and uh, sort of having the biggest impact on investment into growth stage companies. Um, you know, why are we out of sync with the markets? I think, you know, firstly, our whole model, model is predicated on fundraising from a really like diverse set of investors. So you have, you can draw on different people at different times. They might have different motivations, different um, return profiles that they are uh, looking to achieve from your sort of classic VC. And then finally, you know, and this is the same with other venture capital uh, models, you know, it's a long-term illiquid asset class. So we're not always impacted in the same way as the public markets. But we're definitely not immune and seeing the current downturn, we're, we are seeing the impact, we're just seeing not seeing it as significantly on our investor base as we're seeing elsewhere in, in venture. Hmm. I mean, it, it, it seems particularly a, a sort of a European problem, kind of looking a little bit at the numbers as well. I don't know, Zainab, if you're kind of looking at that as well, but where, where we're sort of seeing from a top 10 funding round, six of them were the US, four of them were APAC. Doesn't leave a lot around for uh, a lot of space for for Europe. I mean, is that the is that a sign of maybe the maturity of the market potentially, or is it just that there are bigger companies at different stages of the cycle? You know, is this just a evolutionary hiccup we're having here, and you know, normal service will be resumed as those companies come through? Yeah. So um, looking at that list, it's not really apples to apples because the 
the list includes a lot of kind of pharma industrial companies that are quite capital intensive. Um, but I think if we were to look at it from a kind of growth and tech innovation perspective, the outcome wouldn't be that different. We're not going to see that many European companies there. If anything, we might see European companies that were originally European and then became US companies. Um, so there is a question of, yes, I think in certain categories, and this is not fintech, so often an enterprise, um, to build a a category defining company and a large enough outcome, you need to be global and there US is a huge market opportunity. So a lot of European companies go to the US. And from a FinTech perspective, um, we're talking about transactionally, transactional revenue businesses and these can get really big in one or two regions. So, and often they will actually stay in Europe from a regulation perspective because of the way they are built and the customers they target they can get big enough in, in Europe and there's no reason for them to go to the US, except for uh, public markets. That I think is gonna be a big concern in Europe in the next 10 years. When we think about growth stage, large investments, where do these growth companies and unicorns effectively go public if they are serving customers in Europe? So I think this is something that we'll need to think through, but I don't think it's a market is not big enough question because for FinTech market is big enough in Europe. It's a question of how do you get exits? Yeah. Yeah, I guess in, in, in that point on the maturity of the market as well, to a certain degree, right? Actually, if you've got the, uh, I mean, it's been an interesting one over the last, I don't know, seven or eight years, seeing the regulatory frameworks change around the world. Uh, some regions have almost kind of seen the movie before. I know if you look at somebody like um, uh, Barney over at Clio, uh, you know, they were developing an AI product here. It was very you know, uh, a sort of competitive market, going to the US wasn't just about having squillions of people in, in every state. It was it was actually like being able to enter the market and be truly competitive in that space as well. So it's interesting that sort of, I know uh, if the Department of International Trade were on the podcast right now, it would be like the in, import-export model for UK fintech and blah, 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 blah. But, but it's interesting to see where different regions are doing that really effectively. And actually that, that regulatory framework that allows fintech to really operate in those spaces. But uh, sorry, Kirsty, I think I cut across you as well. No, I was just going to say, I, I do think I, I completely agree that capital markets in, in uh, Europe and the UK uh, need improvement to kind of keep, I guess, those those uh, more mature companies here at the time of exiting or listing. But I, but I think it's even probably one or two stages before that. And we are seeing that start to mature um, over the last few years. But those sort of mega rounds are generally still... Um, often involve you know being led by U.S. capital, uh, and so I do think there is still there's still some room to grow um, and mature in terms of the market here. Um, but that in terms of whether it's a European problem at the moment, part of that I think is is often just lag. I mean, what we've seen is that we're generally just a little bit behind the U.S. in terms of what the markets do. Um, so you know, the optimist in me says there's some recovery that we're seeing in. Uh, the last quarter or so in the US, and hopefully that's coming our way. Very good. Well, it's always good to leave the first half of a show with a little bit of optimism. Uh, the second half of the show, uh, I mean, Liza basically has the recipe for sorting this out, right? So we're going to come back and pick her brains a little bit more after the break. All right, see you in a second, folks. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. 
pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, welcome back. So in this part of our discussion, what we're going to be doing is taking a little bit of a closer look at those fintechs and finance startups who are actually finding investment in such significantly challenging environment. Uh, one example, obviously, Liza, from your perspective with, with Stash, raising 40 million in this period of time, I mean, it's a difficult thing to do in many times. And you say you've you worked in different periods of uh, the market. Um Tell us a little bit more then. I mean, was it, it's always interesting. I, I found H1 this year was weird. Nobody was not talking, but actually it felt like the world was just talking. They weren't really sort of doing anything necessarily. So, you know, was it different because there were fewer investors who wanted to have conversations or were they still talking or, I, I mean, how, how did the environment feel different? I think there were a lot of people who were interested in talking. I think that's always going to be true. There's anything that venture capitalists enjoy, it's optionality and knowledge. So, uh, but I think a lot of people waiting to see how public markets will evolve. Kirsty talked about some of the lag between US and Europe. There's certainly a bias in the US to say, like there's a lag between public and private markets. And so um, just as everywhere, people looking for liquidity and since if you look at what happened in the IPO market in the U.S. in the first half, there were certainly a lot of people who were cautious about whether markets and windows would reopen. I think in our instance, Stash, which is an investing platform for middle-income consumers, was able to differentiate itself in a world where people were particularly cautious about consumer fintechs for all the good reasons that Zainab and Kirsty have talked about before, um, found a foothold, one, because we have a really strong established base of investors, both from the VC community, but also strategics. And I think that diverse investor base was important in the mix. Um, and two, because of our proximity and path to profitability and the strong underlying unit economics. I think there's just been a reversion to first principles view on investing where people actually care about how you will actually make money either now or in the not so distant future. And so I think that's what allowed us to actually get the round done. But um, I, it was a slog. I will not joke. Um, definitely a challenging environment. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you say, it's never not it, well, it's never easy. Do you know what I mean? Like nobody's ever just banging on your door with uh, $60 million and going, hey, would you like some of this money? You know, like, it, but it, but it's definitely harder in this process, isn't it? The the balances and the checks and everything that goes with it. I mean, uh, any market goes through, I guess, you know, there's the, always the, um, is it a feature? Is it a product? Is it a business kind of debate, right? So do you think, uh, I mean, and, and again, it sounds such an obvious thing to say out loud, but the sustainability of a long-term product roadmap that shows actually how this is a sustainable business at maturity. I mean, that feels like it It shouldn't be something that differentiates in a pitch pack, but actually is at this stage, right? Yeah. And look, I think we've talked a little bit already about kind of, I will say, the um, consolidated burst of enthusiasm that occurred 
during COVID, I think because of the more rapid adoption of some of the digital platforms, but I think that sort of really low interest, close to no interest environment, which made capital abundant and seemingly infinitely available, really created the proliferation of a number of businesses that are really features or products, but not truly platforms or businesses. And I think as we look forward over the next couple of years, particularly in fintech, we're going to see much more consolidation, both within privates and publics and privates, that will kind of, I think, help us recapture some of the value that was, um, I'm going to say, trapped in the capital deployed inside that bubble. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, this is always uh, never in isolation, you know, when no, no fintech, no FI is ever in you know a lovely little silo. I could probably name a couple of banks who think they are, but like uh, I won't. I won't name names at this stage. But but I, I think the you know we're seeing big banks acquiring fin. You know, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase with Nutmeg, or you know we're seeing gigantic organizations acquire. Uh, you know, real advancements from a technological perspective, from a business model perspective, from a, a brand's perspective. You know, when you talk about consolidation, do you think it's it's really quite far-reaching in terms of, you know, obviously we've got the, this isn't just a fintech versus bank play. There's, there's all of these, you know, Apple acquiring fintechs and all different types of things happening in the mix. Um, do you think, I, I guess, the competitive landscape will continue to drive the industry forward as well? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there is a strong desire among consumers, SMB, and enterprise for continued innovation. I think there's a lot of really spectacular talent loose in the market right now, as we talked about before. And I think that's going to drive these continued kind of virtuous circles of innovation in a number of different fronts. I don't think there is a monopoly so to speak, on banks acquiring fintechs. I do think there was a trend we used to talk about a few years ago that there's sort of fintech inside of everything, right? And you sort of saw that proliferation, at least on the payment side of the world. Um, And I think that's true now. I mean, I, I think there's a race in the alphabet soup of what letter can you put in front of like AS for service, right? Banking as a service, payments as a service, fill in the blank. Um, And the truth is that how you move money around kind of infiltrates almost any aspect of human condition. And so there's almost an infinite number of industries where, you know, the insertion of smart financial tech could be beneficial if it's done strategically. And certainly with the challenge in the fundraising environment today, it creates ample opportunities across a number of sectors for that to occur. Yeah, yeah, we're. Uh, I mean, we sort of say at Eleven FS, the the industry is only one percent finished. Uh, like, it, it definitely feels like there's a huge amount of potential. I mean, Zainab, you were talking about that that underlying nature of the industry. We talk about the fabric of financial services that that's shifting dramatically. I, I feel like Zainab, this is the bit where I'm going to get your DMs flooded. Like, what do you look for in an investment? I do apologize. Like, uh, you're going to get uh, don't say Gen AI, whatever you do, because there'll be like a thousand people trying to give you ebooks on LinkedIn as well. But what, like, what is it that you guys at General Catalyst are actually looking for? So for us, I mean, um, and it, it's also a bit of a personal question because it's a lot of the partners who also make the investment decision. But I think for everyone at General Catalyst, it's first about the founder. So we, for us, I mean, it doesn't matter what stage we invest in. 
it needs to be someone who's very passionate about the about the problem, someone who will endure what's going to be kind of showing up on his way or her way throughout that process, and who has big ambitions to not only create outsized financial returns, but also societal impact. So this is something that we care a lot about. We have a responsible innovation framework when we invest in companies or before we invest in companies, we talk about the founder and how the founder fits within the responsible innovation framework and how does the idea fit within the invest um, the responsible innovation framework. And within that, we talk about the unintended consequences this company can have on the society and all the positives that this company can have on the society. And these are really core to how we evaluate um, companies and make investment decisions. And um, the other thing I'll say is that we have a very thematic approach to investing. Uh, and I think this is something relatively new in Europe. We have a lot of U.S. funds who are uh, thematic, and I think now introducing that um, in Europe. So I make, you know, I primarily focus on enterprise and fintech, and we make all our fintech decisions within our um, fintech group. Um, so then we're quite thematic in what's going to be the next kind of 10 years, uh, what, what the next 10 years is going to be about from a fintech perspective. Well, I was going to say, I think that makes a great deal of sense as well. Because, I mean, even in suppressed market, then the people you're investing in want investors who deeply understand the problem that they're trying to solve. Not not just from a you know a spreadsheet and financial perspective, but somebody who is as passionate about solving that problem as as they are, right? Uh, I love the the point around the... I mean, I, I, I hear all of that as they're like crazily passionate enough to still get up every morning and try and solve that problem, right? Because that's almost um, determination is like the... the um, uh, Liza, I see you sort of nodding along to that one. It's like, you know, running a business is not what people make it out to be. It's not that sort of beautiful entrepreneurial story. It's friggin' hard work. Like, I wouldn't have bothered if somebody told me that beforehand, you know what I mean? But like, actually, it turns out that's like almost like the key uh, the key thing that goes with it. So, and it's interesting, isn't it? Almost the, the process that you go through, Liza, to bring in great talent into your organization is really similar to what actually, you know, VCs are looking for in people. It's, it's all about people at the end of the day, isn't it? Success of any business, whether it's a product business or a service business, it's all people. Couldn't agree more. I, I think I mentioned I, I was an operator for a couple of decades um, before I became an investor for a chunk of time and then returned to operating. But when I first became an investor, one of my first investment committees, I thought, oh my God, like I've never been an investor before. Like, what am I going to, how am I going to frame this? And as we started getting into the discussion, I was like, oh, this is actually just like hiring people. I've been hiring people for 20 years. I totally understand how to do this part. Um, and so, you know, really plus one to what Zainab said, like the founders make such a huge difference. Um, and I think particularly in these challenging environments, I'm going to butcher it. It's Warren Buffett. He says like you see um, who's wearing underwear when the water goes out. Maybe it's bathing suit. That makes more sense. Uh, I was going to say a story I can really appreciate having spent a week on the beach. But uh, um, uh, Kirsty, it's an interesting one, I guess, in this time as well. I mean, the one of the big things with fintech is always the community around it. And obviously, you know, that's a big part of what Cedars really helps facilitate is people being part of the businesses that they really, or being able to invest in the businesses that they really believe in. Um, I, I mean, has that 
do you think changed in this period of time? Because, I mean, the the community, the ecosystem, uh, for want of a better word, around fintech definitely hasn't gone away. You know, the meetups are still as busy as ever. The, the drive for the community and the fascination for this has not gone away. And that might point to why, you know, with you guys, with Cedars, that actually there hasn't been a massive change because that desire hasn't gone away. Absolutely. The appetite is still very much there. Um, you know, if we're seeing some bounciness and, you know, a, you know, even our investors still, you know, looking more at fundamentals of, of businesses, the appetite to be part of a innovative company that is, you know, delivering a service you want, that that dynamic still exists. Um, and that is very much the crux of why fintech's always been such a key part of our portfolio. While we are sector agnostic, uh, fintechs just have a natural affinity of for fundraising from their customers and community and creating those strong ties with that that community by literally making them shareholders in their company. Um, and those early adopters of fintechs have that natural affinity for transacting online and investing in this new way and in this new new model. Um, and that combined, I think, with just us being, you know, headquartered in London, make it became natural that we were sort of the fundraising platform for many of um, the UK's fintechs and particularly that wave of kind of consumer fintechs and neobanks that, that we talked about earlier. Um, and that, yeah, we're seeing that continue. I mean, in H1, I think in the UK, we were the, still the most active funder of um, fintechs uh, at seed and series A stage. Um, but we are seeing significant growth in other areas um, in terms of pure investment dollars. So while finance and payments remained the top, I think they're still the top spot in H1 uh, in terms of um, amount raised, clean energy is actually our fastest growing sector uh, with like a 24% increase in funding in H1. Um, and uh, you know, some of our most successful raises this year have been in that area. And certainly our um, most recent investor survey, we just asked our investors what they're looking for. And, and you know, qualitatively, the response was sort of matched the numbers in that they're looking very much at, um, you know, clean tech uh, and um, sort of ESG-focused businesses. Um, but I think that just follows that same trend of retail investors wanting that decision, wanting part of the decision-making, wanting to participate in how capital gets allocated um, and which businesses come to the fore and uh, provide solutions for, for the future. Yeah. It feels um, it feels like we probably answered the question pretty effectively. I mean, I, I don't think the investment in fintech, you know, is done um, we're not all out of jobs just yet, thank God, which is which is good. We've got a few few years in this, few more problems to solve, I, I guess. But uh, I mean, do we really think this will have a a lasting impact? This this blip, um, or do we think really? Uh, I mean, Liza, have you seen over your career? I mean, there's always a sort of a separation of the uh, you know the wheat from the chaff, as it were, in terms of the uh, the sustainable businesses and the unsustainable businesses. Is, is this sort of reckoning actually really healthy for the market in that sense? I mean, I think it is. I also think, um, as both Kirsty and Zainab pointed out, there's a, really a flurry of, I think, amazing activity at the seed stage right now with new companies being born. I think coming into this post-pandemic period, both because of people from multiple sectors kind of making different choices about how they want to spend their time. I think there's an infusion of both kind of new blood, new thinking, but also experienced, let's call it second and third generation ecosystem participants 
who have kind of seen problems in, let's call it, the Wright Brothers phase of the industry and now want to move us more toward, I'm going to say modern air travel. We're not quite at the SpaceX level yet. I agree a little bit with the the wheat from the chaff type analogy to an extent, but I I do think that that can get oversimplified sometimes. Um, in you know we we I keep having this there's a venture capitalist uh, who writes in this area Tom Tungus and he keep I keep getting it quoted to me at the moment um, when people are struggling to raise capital and you know he's made all these comments about most startups can run with smaller teams with negligible impact on revenues and that this is all about you know focusing back on good executors. I think that is true to an extent, but I do think it can still have an impact on, you know, you can run on a smaller team with negligible impact on revenue in the short term. Uh, But, you know, we talked earlier about long-term product roadmaps and true innovation. And does that, you know, those are the things that go when you are in an environment, sort of capital constrained environment, and you know, you've been told to execute with a smaller team and survive, then it's all about the, you know, the, tr- the bets that you know will pay off and no one's then in that time willing to make the bet on or push an initiative forward or innovate for something that, you know, won't pay off for six to 12 months, if at all. So it's all about the proven stuff all of a sudden and you lose some of that creativity. Yeah, I mean, it's easier to change uh, direction early than it is trying to change your food source like halfway through, right? You know, that's a, a very different thing to change your aspirations in in that way. Uh, I mean, do you do you think the really the market has sort of gone a bit of full loop? I know when we did a we did a documentary talking about this, uh, we had Tom Blomfield on there from ex CEO Monzo said, you know, at some point this cycle restarts itself and the 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 challenges start to become challenged by the new people coming through. Do you know I, I think there's a an element of those things. You know, we are seeing Yes, you know, people like Monzo and Starling and Newbank and, and people were really early in this cycle. Nutmeg, you know, actually people kind of progressed to a certain point and then creating, I mean, Liza, creating that innovation, that continual cycle, the the um, restlessness to keep innovating and keep moving forwards. At some point, that's hard to maintain in organizations, isn't it? And inevitably, that leaves more opportunities on the table to be invested in to, to pursue that, that leader in the market. Yeah, look, I think scale is both a huge advantage, but also can be an inhibitor for change and innovation inside an organization. And that's true regardless of sector um, and regardless of whether you're a public or private company. I was going to say earlier um, to a comment that Christy made around this, around like when you sort of really scale down, one of my first bosses, and this was in a large public company, was during a pretty bad crisis in the late 90s. Um, And he looked at me and he said, yeah, but nobody's ever cut their way to growth. Um, and I think it's an important lesson to learn, even when you batten down the hatches to preserve capital, that um, continued scaling back while it creates creativity, um, and I think that's important, um, is not always the way to create the quantum leaps forward from an innovation perspective, whether you're in an enterprise or consumer business. 100%. Uh, it goes back to that people point, doesn't it? I mean, it, I think anybody who says it's uh, easy to downplay, uh, you know, uh, extend your runway uh, is a um, code word for let people go. And for any organization that's ever been through that, 
it's not an easy thing to do and maintain the culture of the company and still deliver the things that you want to do. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Kirsty. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that guy might have run a business. Maybe that might be the challenge. Um, all right. On that note, I think we probably better wrap this up because um, I think um, the need for money ain't going to go away anytime soon. Uh, the opportunities in the fintech space to really uh, make hay in that space are not definitely not uh, exhausted in the market. So at that point, we probably should wrap up today's session. So thank you so much for everybody for joining us. Uh, where can people learn a little bit more about you and your company? Liza, starting with you. Uh, follow me on LinkedIn, please. Very good. Kirsty. Uh, Kirsty Grant on LinkedIn, and you can find us at cedars.com. Very good. Zainab. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Zainab Yavuz, and you can find Journal Catalyst online, journalcatalyst.com. Very, very good. As for me, you can predominantly find me lurking on LinkedIn these days. Thank you so much for listening. If you do like what you've heard, follow our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show as well. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on every social media channel at this stage. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider uh, or email us on podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.